church is not to be the means of government in this country. Jesus brings his kingdom on earth, not by political force, but by his disciples communicating with his gospel. Something has happened, however, to this otherwise good virtue of tolerance. It has been elevated to the prime virtue of our culture and has been applied to many areas of life. It may mean that you cannot publicly say that someone's lifestyle is wrong as a Christian. And it exerts pressure on the church to be tolerant as well and allow Christian lifestyles to continue. It's hard to maintain that practicing homosexuals be barred from becoming priests or pastors in the church. What should the church try to do with such tolerance? The abstention of some churches of practice. If you ordain priests with such a lifestyle, you cannot condemn church members who practice sexual medicine. Our culture of tolerance puts pressure on the church, on our church as well. Can we still exercise church discipline over people who live in addiction and abuse in the Catholic Church? Or should we accept them and confront them for such treatment? Both the borders and the essential character of the church are at stake. Where does the church end and the world begin? And what's the church all about? When you have a good understanding of what the Bible says on these issues, you will know how to respond to the pressures of our culture. A priest preaching the gospel under this roof keeps the church pure in a culture of tolerance. First, the three reviews for church discipline. Second, the purpose of church discipline. Those three reviews for church discipline. Paul never beats around the bush. He had received accurate information about the church in Corinth. His response showed that he was appalled, maybe even outraged, by what those Christians were doing in the name of Christ. When he writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. We should not think that Paul bases this on some vague rumor. He had received reliable information from members of that church, and he knew exactly what he was doing. What alarmed Paul was the fact that this sexual immorality was not one incident, but was an ongoing thing. There was a man who had his father's wife. The word had tells us that he was living with her on a permanent basis. It was an ongoing relationship. The way Paul described this tells us that this was not his own mother, but probably his stepmother, something his mother. The sin this Corinthian man was engaged in was something that God had clearly forbidden in the Greek Creed of Leviticus 18. It is forbidden for a man to have sexual relations with his mother or his father's wife. This is an example of homosexuality. Christians should know better than to permit and allow this kind of behavior. Even pagans would not have condoned this. They tolerated many things, even temple prostitution. But here too, even they drew the line. A father and a son should not share the same wife. When you read this, you may wonder how a situation in the church of Corinth 19th century church can seem so strange. We can imagine many sins we can commit, but not this one. We could try to expand this and say that any sexual sin would be wrong, and people who live in those sins without repentance should be disciplined. However, this is not the point of this chapter, but of the next one. Paul addresses sexual immorality in a broader sense in chapter 6, and shows why this is wrong among the Christians. We should pay attention to the sins Paul is addressing. He did not address the man who lived in this sin, but the congregation. The 
big issue in this chapter is that the congregation tolerated this sin. How can a Christian church ever do a thing like this? That this man lived in commission of wrongdoing. Then the Corinthians shared it with him because they did not rebuke him and exercise church discipline, but instead they tolerated this sin in their midst. The holiness of the congregation was at stake. It would have made sense if Paul had rebuked them by saying, this man lives in sin, you do not exercise church discipline. However, he wrote something else in verse 2. This man lives in sin and he has pride. You should have just killed this Greek and put him out of your fellowship. These last words refer to church discipline. Someone who lives in sin should be rebuked. And if he does not repent, he should be excommunicated, removed from the fellowship of the church. But first, Paul reproached them as being proud instead of meek in their testimony. This response of the Corinthians was not what we would expect. If they tolerated sin, this could have happened because they did not care. But that was not the reason. They were proud. Pride goes a little deeper. There was something else that made them feel like this. The earlier chapters of Paul's epistle gives us insight into the state of mind of the Corinthians. They were split into groups, rallying behind great teachers, and they thought that Paul was not good enough for them. It was a group of arrogant people who would have nothing for Paul's leadership because they found him not spiritual enough. Paul needed to reaffirm his apostolic authority among them, and he did so by writing this letter. This toleration of sin was a consequence of their proud attitude. Their pride was that they thought too highly of themselves. They were these great spiritual persons who were far beyond Paul's level of maturity and wisdom. However, their spirituality was hindered by the deep division between the spiritual and the earthly things, between spirit and flesh. This is how they argued. Whatever you do with your body, do it in excess of spirit. This explains why the people, these people who had come to become Christians, could commit and tolerate sin on such a scale. Paul's letter shows us that there were many things wrong with this group. If you disconnect what you do with your body from what you believe in your heart, it's just like a thief steals your spirituality. These church members had converted, but they had not made that connection to this, that they should also, that they should also lead a different lifestyle. They justified their behavior with this separation between body and spirit, which made it possible for their sinful lifestyle to continue. The church's lifestyle was in no way different than the world's lifestyle. In fact, reportedly, there was an expression in in those days, live like a Christian. That meant live whatever you like and revel in all kinds of sexual immorality. The Corinthian believers said, everything is lawful and thought, whatever we do with our bodies does not affect our spirit. And the spirit is what counts in the Christian church. This Christianity wouldn't function like that. It only had a head. It had no body. Faith to them was a matter of the mind, not of the issue. This was also the reason why they tolerated this sin in their midst. They had no problem with it. They had fallen in love with their own spiritual accomplishments and thought they were independent of them. And so it was time for a wake-up call. They needed to understand that God not only saves the spirit and the soul, but also the body. And they needed a deeper spiritual 
sacrifice for the work of God's Spirit, that life in the Spirit had consequences for their ethics and for their behavior. What you do in everyday life, what you do with your bodies, reflects your creator. God has created us as spiritual beings with a body and a free form of speech. Sin had invaded and damaged and almost destroyed both areas. The salvation Jesus brings brings is a complete overhaul of our lives. God is recreating us from the inside out, and Jesus does not stop in spirit and in soul. He wants to set our entire lives free from the devastation of that instrument of death. To Greek philosophy, there's a fact a lack of appreciation for creation. The lower earthly level was considered bad, sinful. However, God had made everything good and perfect. The body in itself is not sinful, and our natural desires would have been good if we were not ignorant of their sinful nature. This is why food is hard to eat. It is given to gluttons. This is why marriage is no longer honored, because sex is selfishly enjoyed anywhere freely used in the bounties God has set for us. Good desires have turned into desires of the flesh that lead us away from God and evil purpose in our lifestyles. If we think the body is in itself bad, we cannot see God's goodness in creation or overlook the consequences of salvation for your body and all earthly things. The way we use our bodies and our enjoyment, the way we use our time, the way we use the things of creation and our possessions, all these things are being consumed by God's spirit. When you include those things in your walk with God and think that salvation is only a matter from here to the mind, you do not let the Holy Spirit work in you to pull us there. You will continue to live like a pagan while you claim to be a Christian. It is important that we realize, too, that the way we think determines what we do. Our theology determines our ethics. If you exclude a certain area of your life from God's grace and power, and think the law does not apply there, you are in very grave danger. If you keep up what is written and stay in today's world, you will notice the same things. If you keep public morality and change it in a few decades, through a constant barrage of liberal thinking, through the influence of movies, books, and what else has been opened in our nation. This is what, is happen what has happened to many people already. Before they realize it, they think that this is Christian. Before they realize it, they think that this is different and that the Christian lifestyle is wrong. At first, they felt guilty, but that feeling slowly erodes the more they see other people and their motives. After a while, they are, they are relieved that they can get rid of the guilt. This is why nowadays all kinds of immoral behavior is not only tolerated but even celebrated. We have reached the next stage. People with immoral lifestyles like homosexuality are protected as minorities and are demanding that their rights be respected. The whole gay movement and the push for same-sex marriages has been prepared for decades. Because of the earlier steps in the process, now there's the time when they get what they want. In this case, it's society that wants to have this. We need to realize that sin does not come along just like that, but is preceded by a process in which our values are undermined and reshaped and worse as we decline. If you think you are safe, but you reject same-sex marriages and forget 
that your original culture that redefines all values and undermines the sacred values of your culture. What we need to do is guard our hearts. The place where not only decisions are made, but where our feelings come from. Realize the battle within your heart. You have to protect your heart and prevent your desires from being dictated by the world. You can protect your heart by immersing yourself in God's revelation, by knowing his will by heart, and by submitting your heart and mind to him in Christ. Remember that he is Lord, and he is Lord over your entire life. Pray for discernment. Find out God's will in any given situation, praying for the faith and the strength to obey it. Don't let anyone tell you that you need to learn your own life, that you need a break from the strict upbringing, or that you don't need to feel guilty about your modern lifestyle. Instead, judge everything with the will of God as your center. First Timothy, our second point, the purpose of church discipline. As we have seen in the church of Corinth, they changed their changed attitude also led to tolerating things in the church which God had failed to forbid. Tolerance was buzzword at that time. Society demands that we conform to that idea. You are frowned upon if you call something a sin. People feel offended when you do that and they feel that their freedom is being violated. This could influence the way in which you deal with church discernment. The path of church discipline has previously commanded naming it appeal being judgmental. It is controversial in our society. It would be easier if we could find other ways to respond and avoid the confrontation. In some churches, the leaders stay away from church discipline altogether, afraid that it would divide the congregation. They may may worry about their position in the future, more about their position in the future than about God's kingdom. Other factors to consider Fatigue from the congregation. The reputation of the person in question. Their contribution to the church. The other considerations are discussed. But the clear truth that the church must be holy is lost when it starts to happen. Paul affirms the importance of church discipline. He says in that passage, Jesus has shown his church the way in Matthew 18. If a brother sins against you, go and rebuke him that he may repent. If he does not listen, bring one or two witnesses. And if he still does not listen, tell it to the congregation. If he does not listen to the church, treat it as a pagan and thus become an unbeliever. Church discipline is rooted in the Old Testament. God called his people as his own and sanctified them. He made them holy so that they would be completely rededicated to him. Because he is holy, his people must be holy. No sin can be tolerated in the midst of his people. It should be removed by repentance and forgiveness, or, if the person does not repent, then the congregation is at fault. What is at stake is not our reputation in the church. If they expect us to conform to their values, we don't have to obey them. We need to realize that the church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he makes her holy for the sake of the world. So we need to uphold church discipline and be clear about the motives of persons of God's church. Whoever loves their sin more than Christ should place themselves outside the church and reject the world. Only then can the church be holy. Here's another important thing we need to realize. We've learned from this passage.
passage that they're thinking of is not something we can delegate to the leaders. Notice who Paul addresses in this chapter. The entire church, not just the elders. Church discipline needs to be exercised by the members as a mutual act of love. This places us under the obligation to practice what we preach. We believe that proper exercising of church discipline is one of the characteristics of a church true church that we need to practice carefully. This turns out to be more difficult than we thought. Church discipline is not a scientific scripture. Only, but to everyone in the congregation, you need to think about how you can scale your capacity to care about your church. If you find it to be deeply difficult to relate to others as little as possible, you need to realize this is not conducive to your involvement in church discipline. If you do not love the other person and never talk to them about church, how can you discuss church discipline with the weekend coming up? You might not use the right attitude, and your words may fall on deaf ears to begin with when they think, this person never showed any interest in me before, now he's here to attack me. Exercising church discipline amongst each other implies that we belong to each other and we love each other with the love of Christ. The New Testament also has a very clear command that we should encourage each other, love each other, and strengthen each other. With something else that Paul teaches us in this chapter. The, perp- the purpose of church discipline is not to get rid of the church. On the contrary, in the first place, even Matthew 18, which describes the whole process up to communication, shows me that the outcome does not have to be excommunication. If the sinner repents, he shall not call women Christians, and he shall not be thwarted his congregation. We should not talk to people already start pushing them out of the church and alienating them from the church by being negative and setting ultimatums, if you don't, then. The goal is not to get rid of the person, but to gently and decidedly convict them of sin and call them to repentance. Church discipline is not only intended for maintaining a holiness in the congregation, but has also this goal of salvation of the sinner. And it becomes clear person is not rebuked for their sin, 
benefit at your resentment and your judgment of God. There is no reason for them to contend with the unity of the church and against their resentment. Not only the world finds it okay, but even God's church thinks that it is a problem. We do not help people at all, but if we stop calling sin, sin, and fail to deal with it according to God's will, we would be servants of the suffering of their souls. This case study from the church in Corinth should not be taken as a blueprint for every church association that abuses that provision. The congregation is the real community, and becoming a family is the real thing that can tolerate this looking at the world and the community of Corinth. According to them, we should not deal with people's sins, because then we will be judgmental. How can we prevent this attitude of treating encouraging unbelief from exercising Jesus' discipline? By realizing this chapter teaches us that discipline is the key way that is meant to keep the congregation saved and to strengthen the affiliation. Jews succumb to the pressure of our culture to become like the world through the fail to obey, obey our Lord and Savior. He calls us to be a holy congregation. Jesus' image are led back to him. He gives us an awesome responsibility. His image is faithful to everlasting destruction. 